0: And so on April 23rd, 1985, it stands out as one of the most significant dates in business history. The 99-year-old Coca-Cola company announced that it was scrapping its original formula and going forward with new Coke. And the reaction was just overwhelming. I mean, it is now considered the greatest blunder in business of all time. They were met with all sorts of protests. They received over 40,000 letters. They were getting hammered with reams and reams of articles in the newspaper. I mean, people were just so upset that they had messed with Coca-Cola. For three months, Coca-Cola didn't know what to do. They're trying to promote this new Coke, and all they did was make a lot of people mad. And so in the midst of this, about three months after the introduction of new Coke, they came out with a statement that is now considered the greatest stroke of marketing genius in history. If you ever study marketing, uh, you will know, you will study this. They came out with this statement. We apologize. We recognize that now we understand that Coca-Cola is a classic. It's an American institution and we are sorry. We back down. We're putting it back on. And they called it Coca-Cola Classic. And they tried to take all the new Coke off the shelves. And they filled it back up with Coca-Cola Classic. Their sales surged. And it was considered the greatest one-time business decision ever. Now, they had put so much money and time and effort in the, co- the new Coke that they tried to put it out as Coke 2. It still didn't. People didn't like it. You know, like, if I wanted something sweet tasting like that, I'd drink Pepsi. And so they eventually faded away. And really, the moral of the story is this. Don't mess with a classic. Don't mess with a classic. If you have a classic, you don't just change it because you got pressure from a new generation. Now, that's soft drinks. But when we're talking about Christianity, this goes to a whole new level. And the message is this don't mess with a classic. That's exactly what was happening with early Christianity. The gospel of grace, forgiveness in Christ, that Jesus is indeed the living, eternal Son of God, entered into humanity, lived a perfect life, dies and pays the penalty for sin, and rises three days later. He is the Messiah. The gospel of grace was introduced to the world and people were believing in Christ, receiving salvation, finding forgiveness. Churches were being established. But you need to know that in the first century, there were two major attacks that the early church faced. One of them was what is called legalism. There are folks that came from Jewish backgrounds and there are folks that uh, said they'd become Christian. Some of them genuinely had others. They were still trying to figure it out. But what they wanted to do was to have Christianity really become like a form of Judaism following all sorts of laws, rules, and regulations. It's called legalism. And what happened is, is that they had a new Christianity that really tasted a whole lot like old Judaism. And it was a major issue in in the first century for the church. There was a second major issue, though, that was facing the church. And that is what is called syncretism. It is the blending and the melding of the one true faith with the ideals of the world, religions that are around there, whether they be cultural, regional. uh, They were trying to mix in all sorts of belief systems. It's called syncretism. So they had two major issues, legalism and syncretism. First century. Let's kind of move it forward to today. Guess what? Christianity is facing two major issues. One is legalism. It's the idea that rituals, routines, regulations somehow earn you favor with God. That if you do these things, uh, you're going to be fine with God. And we have literally millions of people that are all about rituals and routines. They think that. Well, if I I just show up at church, I stand up at the right time, I say the right things, if I do these things, somehow this earns God's favor and life will be better for me. Even if it's not working, they think that just by the sheer habit of me doing these things and having years and years of following a particular formula, that I am going to find whatever hope, peace, and joy that God might have to offer by my religion. And on the other hand, you know what else we're facing? Syncretism. I can tell you, Christianity is spawning all sorts of different churches, all sorts of different belief systems. Yeah, they're, they're saying, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus and we believe in the Bible, but they're mixing it with all the things that the world might have to offer. In fact, right now, it's not uncommon for a lot of Christians to deny cardinal truths of the faith. They don't even know them, and when they're asked about them, I'm like, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. Are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And they go to a church, and their churches keep promoting this sort of stuff. I'll tell you, the two major issues facing the new new church in the first century and what we're facing today are the same. Legalism and syncretism. You know what is needed? Classic Christianity. Like what Jude said, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. What we need is 100% pure Christianity. And friends, that's what we're going to be looking at. That's why we're going to study the book of 2 Timothy. It is the real thing. It is how what Christianity really is and how it is really lived out. And we're going to be taking a look at it. And today is just kind of an introduction. Let me give you a little background here. The Apostle Paul at the end of his life found himself imprisoned about A.D. 65. He's in a Roman prison and he knows that he is going to be executed in short order. He doesn't know when, but he knows it's going to happen. It wasn't the first time he'd been imprisoned, And so, as God had used him prior in so many different ways, God had the Apostle Paul write one final letter. It's a deeply personal letter to his protege, a pastor in Ephesus, a guy by the name of Timothy. We know it as 2 Timothy. But this particular book is all about classic Christianity. Let me give you just a taste. If you got your Bibles open to 2 Timothy, let's look at it, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that my joy may be filled. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of community, but of power and of love and of discipline. You see, in Timothy's life as a pastor, not he was, he's in Ephesus. So you've got all of these Greek and Roman gods and people worshiping them in a rather rampant, highly immoral way. And you have folks are like, we need to bring a little bit more of this and infuse it into our Christianity. On the other hand, you had a lot of folks from the Jewish persuasion that are saying, really, we need to go back to the law. And That coupled with how life can be so difficult. If you're ever involved in Christian ministry, you realize that this is tough. In fact, life itself presents all sorts of trials, and it can take you to a place of despair. Timothy was obviously at that state. That's why Paul is writing. He's writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because you know what Timothy needs? He needs classic Christianity. What is... The essence though of classic Christianity. I mean, what is it? Do you know? Like if someone to ask you, like, tell me, just cut the fluffy stuff. What what really is the essence of Christianity? Could you tell them? I will make this statement. You cannot pass on what you do not possess. You can't pass on what you do not possess. And so what Paul is doing. Here's a man who has grown to truly know Christ and the essence of Christianity. And from his own personal experience, he's going to write this deeply personable letter. But in order for you to really understand 2 Timothy, you have to know a little bit about the human author that God selected. If you want to know the essence of Christ-centered living, it's simply this. Christ-centered living is at the heart of classic Christianity. And so we're going to, in our remainder of our time together, look at it from Paul's own words. His own personal testimony of what God had done in his life and how Jesus Christ really changed his life. So I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy. And we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at Paul's own words. His own testimony, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. How does Christ really change our life? Well, we'll find out. First thing I want to show you in beginning in verse 12 is that Christ strengthens us for his service. So Paul is going to give his testimony and he begins by saying, Timothy, and this is the first letter he wrote to his protege, Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Notice he refers to Christ Jesus as our Lord. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. It's not rituals. It's not a plan. It's not regulations. It's not the law. The essence of Christianity is to be strengthened by the person of Jesus Christ. So often we think that it's just following a religion, but actually it's relationship with Christ. That is the secret of life. He says Christ strengthens us. And if you've read the New Testament and you look at Paul's letters, I want you to note how many times Paul references that it is God who strengthens me. You'll find that Paul gives his testimony uh, a lot of different times in the New Testament. He does it before rulers. He does it before the lost. He does it before the redeemed. And in this case, he even does it with just another fellow believer individually, a guy by the name of Timothy. Do You remember in the book of Philippians, another place that he gives his testimony, that he says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, I can do all things through anybody know Christ or him who strengthens me. I can do all things because I go to church, I go all things, I can do all things because they got a lot of Bibles. No, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It is this personal relationship with Christ that brings strength. Like at the very end of his life, and we'll look at this in Second Timothy chapter four, he had been abandoned by all human companionship. He had been wounded deeply, greatly maligned. And he wrote this in Second Timothy chapter four, verse seventeen. He says but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Friends, that's classic Christianity. That's the essence of our faith. It is Christ at the center, Jesus strengthening us. That's that is the hope of our faith. And I'll tell you, how does he how does he do that? How does Christ really strengthen us? One of the things that Jesus does is that As we go to his word, he reminds us of the truth. The truth about God, the truth about forgiveness, about Jesus, about our purpose, about our past, about eternity and our future. God reminds us of truth. And the other way that God strengthens us is that he literally has placed his spirit in us and he renews us with his spirit. He brings strength. There is a dynamic in the Christian life that makes you different and that difference is this personal relationship with Christ so deeply personable is that Christ literally dwells within your hearts by faith. He gives you strength. It allows you to live differently. And when he's saying in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful and he put me in to service. Christ strengthens us for his service. Whatever you're doing this week, you want to do it in the strength of Jesus. Remember uh, remember what Jesus said in John 15? He says, abide in me and I in you. Because apart from me, what? You can do some things, a lot of things. No, you can do nothing. I can tell just by looking out here. Some of you are going through some pretty deep stuff. Some pretty heavy duty trials. God will never put you in a situation that he does not equip you and give you the strength to walk through. In his strength, right? That's why he's saying, that's classic Christianity. It's knowing Jesus. Christ strengthens us for his service. Let me show you something else here. You see, Christ changes our life not only from by strengthening us for his service, but he also saves us from our Look at this. So in verse 12, he says, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, one who slanders God. And he said, I was a blasphemer. I denied Jesus Christ. He Paul would probably very rarely ever say the human name Jesus and put it right next to Christ, meaning Messiah, because he hated Jesus. There's no way that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to be my Messiah. And so what do you do? If you hate Jesus, you you will blaspheme his name. You'll deny him, and that's exactly what he did. I was a formerly a blasphemer and notice this and a persecutor. The word here has the idea of one who like chases an animal. And he says, that was me. I not only was a blasphemer and a persecutor, but look at verse 13, I was also a violent aggressor i was more than rhetoric i was more than just kind of verbally tearing up christians and blaspheming the name of jesus listen i took matters into my own hands i was willing to get my hands dirty i put my words into action and i assaulted christians and that is his early life this is his testimony and all you have to do is kind of read through the book of acts and you find like this, his, Paul's early name His first name was Saul He had it changed Probably because Because it, the, the Saul of Tarsus Was such a wicked guy He's like, I got a new start in Christ I think I'm going to go with Paul But Saul of Tarsus Do you remember him? On the very first time That someone died for their faith in Christ Anybody happen to remember who that guy was? The, the first person to ever die for their faith In Jesus Christ Anybody know? Stephen Yeah In fact, that's why we actually still name our kid Stephen. That's why today our drummer's name is Stephen. Why? Because this, man, if you were a great guy, you got a boldness in Christ. Man, we got high hope for you as a baby. We're going to name you Stephen. And remember, this Stephen, man, this guy knew his Bible well. Do you remember he actually kind of traced through in front of us, hostile Jewish crowd, all the Old Testament history, pointing to how it pointed to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the fulfillment Well, when he called them out and said, Listen, you put Jesus to death, but he's the Messiah. Well, that made those Jewish folks very unhappy. And so what do you do when you're really mad and you don't like Jesus? And you certainly don't like those who are claiming him to be God? You got to do something. And so they did. They killed him. Painful way. Picked up rocks and just pelted him to death. They were considering this is blasphemy, you calling this Jesus the Messiah. Do you know who was... Uh, collecting the varsity coats that day, who was just collecting the jackets? You remember who that was? That's right, it was Saul, the guy who we're reading here. It was Paul? He was watching that. You got to think a man who was so steeped as a Pharisee, who knew the Old Testament, and seeing, wow, there are what he's saying about Jesus truly does fulfill aspects of him being the Messiah. But I don't want Jesus to be my savior. That's going to change everything for me. I don't want that. I didn't grow up that way, and I'm certainly not going to have it now. And so he was right there collecting coats. But he was like, man, collecting coats is one thing. But if you keep reading, Acts chapter 8 begins where he just starts kicking into high gear. He starts persecuting Christians. And that's what he did. He would go from house to house, kind of like in a manhunt. If you were a believer, he's going to haul you away so that you could face some sort of examination, and be put to death in Jerusalem. He also would go and pursue Christians that were scattered throughout the empire, because he, especially in Israel, because he hated Christ. You know, hatred of Jesus isn't something new. Do you, uh, do you know the most persecuted people group in the world? If you read the news like on in the internet or watch the evening news, you don't know the answer to that question. let me just tell you again for 2016 this report is coming out uh, put by the center of new religions i was reading it yesterday it's coming out soon do you know again the most persecuted people group in the world they're christians in 2016 we just finished 2016 they have accounted for 90,000 christians who died who were killed because of their faith in christ Not just they happen to be Christians and they died in this accident. None of that. No, they were killed because of their faith. A third of them under the hands of Islamic terrorists and just people that absolutely hate Jesus. But two thirds of them are from all sorts of other persecution, like even persecution by governments, like in North Korea, or where they retrain people and reeducate them through work. And 60,000 of these Christians die. This report also says that it is estimated there are 600 million Christians who are prevented from practicing their faith around the world at this present time. Why is there such hostility to Jesus and his followers? Anybody know? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to find politically incorrect, all you have to do is look at Jesus who says, no, there is only one way, and that's me. That's why I've come. If you really want truth, you want relationship with God, you want life as it is intended, you want me. That's why I've come. I've come to provide forgiveness of sins, and I will give you life through virtue of my resurrection. But a lot of the world goes, I will not have it. Some are just kind of complacent, like, hey, if that works for you, whatever. Kind of a postmodern mind, you know, it doesn't matter to me. There's plenty of folks that are very hostile to Jesus. They understand his claims enough to say, I will not have it. And I don't mind making your life miserable because of it. Paul understood this. That was his life. (laughs) He was a violent aggressor. You see that? And yet, look at verse 13. Yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Rejecting Christ, denying Jesus, just passing him off and being complacent about him. Friends, that is ignorance in unbelief. You don't know who he really is. And hence, your beliefs, your values, and your actions reflect it. And Paul says, me mr violent aggressor mr blasphemer the persecutor i was shown mercy i received i didn't get what i deserved i deserved hell and damnation but i didn't get it because i was acting ignorantly in unbelief and verse 14 and the grace of our lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in christ jesus you see that verse 14 there's grace Receiving that which you don't deserve. And when I saw Jesus, when Christ literally had me encounter him, I found love and he gave me faith. It changed my life. You see, Christ saves us from our own sinfulness. And here's a verse you might want to mark it on your Bible, if not underline it, because it's one of the greatest verses in the New Testament. Look at this. Paul's own testimony. Verse 15 It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Verse 15, to save sinners. That's powerful. Came into the world. It speaks of his self existence. He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He enters into humanity. He came into the world. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Speaking of his humanity. Fully God, fully man, coming with a mission. Anybody know what the mission is? Verse 15, to save sinners. And that's what he does. He comes to save sinners. People like Paul and people like you and me. Let's be realistic. You and I, we are significant sinners. Right? I mean... Think of your heart. Think of things that you and I have said and done. Think of just our kind of complacency and waywardness when it comes to following Jesus. All of this is sin. You see, you and I are created to know God, to enjoy God, to experience His peace, to love Him. And so often our heart is is just attracted to anything or anyone else. And sometimes our actions are a complete violation of His holiness. We are utterly embarrassed that we even do these things. And we see that deep within us, there's this kind of drive to sin. You need to understand that Jesus came to save sinners. He saves us from the penalty of sin. What's that? The wages of sin is death. That's why he died. He saves us from the power of sin. You know. You and I don't have to just live out the lust of our flesh. We don't have to be dominated and chained to sin any longer because we can be emancipated emancipated by Christ and actually know peace and joy and move forward in the strength of Jesus. So committed is the Lord for us to grow in grace that he actually gives us his Holy Spirit so we have strength to move forward. And God is so completely in the business of rescuing us from sin. He rescued us not only from the penalty, not only from the power of sin, but do you know in eternity we'll be rescued from the very presence of sin? Do you know where we're going to be in the presence of this Lord of the Lord? No sin, no disease, no cancer, no broken relationship. All of that goes away. There is no sin because we're actually going to dwell with him, the almighty. He is so committed to us. The rescue is so complete that is provided in Jesus. Friends, this is classic Christianity, that Christ saves us from our sinfulness. Very interesting. When you look at world religions, have you ever studied them? All world religions are trying to earn God's favor, to do things to make God happy with them. They believe that by doing certain things, following certain rituals, going to this place, saying these things, Performing these acts that somehow God will be favorable to me and my life will be a little bit better. All world religions except the true religion. The Bible tells us the truth. We're sinners. We can't do anything about our sin. That's why God sent his son, like it says in the text, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He literally dies in our place. And did you notice this in verse 15? Kind of a curious statement there. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Really interesting. Paul understood his sinfulness pretty well. Let me tell you what his sinfulness looked like. He was religious without right relationship with Christ. You know you can do that? There are millions of people that are very religious. I know from firsthand experience. Done that. Go to church. Keep mom happy. Say and do whatever I'm supposed to say. But not really know God. That's sin. It's missing the mark. God created for you to know him and made it possible because of Jesus Christ. You can be religious without right relationship with Christ. Paul knew firsthand. Let me tell you something else about his sin. His sin. He rejected the Savior. And he rejected the idea that he was truly sinful because, after all, he was religious and he was kind of highly esteemed by people. Man, all of that led him uh, to delusion. He never really saw his need for the Savior. And if you don't see your need for the Savior, you never trust Jesus. You're self-sufficient. You're your own God. And you'll have it your own way. And one other thing. His behavior... Revealed that he was sinful. I mean, this guy and his anger—he took it out on Christians. All of this is sin. You're going to find this: the godliest of saints, those who have really matured in their relationship with Jesus and walked with Him for some time, they have a strong sense and an awareness of their own sinfulness. And 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 I and I see this in my own life. It's like as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. You see just how deep sin is within you. And you're like, Why? Where did that thought come from? Why why this drive? Why the despair? Why this? Because you see, you see this disparity from what you know into what's actually residing still within. And far from leading us to just like, oh I just give up and despair, it points us back to Jesus and we find great joy that I'm united with a Saviour, the righteous one. I I have him it's not about my righteousness Which is filthy rags. I don't see myself as a wretch. You know how I see myself as redeemed redeemed by christ And friends that is classic christianity We know a savior who is real and how did this jesus How did he take away our sin? Well, like it says romans 5 8 but god demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us friends This is classic Christianity. That's why Paul is writing this. He's writing it and why God is using him to write 2 Timothy so that Timothy's heart will be revived to the classicness of our faith. And then, what's one final point I want to make? How does Jesus Christ really change our lives? He sets us apart for his purposes. You see, Jesus doesn't just save you so that you're just cleansed or forgiven or that, well, You're going to be with me in heaven. He saves us for a purpose. Look look at this, verse 16. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as, and I don't want you to miss this word, an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you see it? Paul says, I have been set apart. As an example, this is the word that would be used for like a model or a type or a pattern. Like if you were in the printing trade, it would be the first proof you trace this. This is the pattern. And Paul says, my life really is a testimony about God's grace in an individual's life. God didn't save him merely to get him out of hell or bring him into heaven. He didn't save him just, well, I just need someone to preach the gospel or even to write some of the New Testament. Primarily, God brought about salvation of Paul for this reason. To be an example to the world of what it means to truly know Christ. The purpose of salvation, whether Paul's or yours or mine, is to display God's grace, power, and patience to produce a true Worshipper of God Your salvation my salvation is primarily about the glory of God He's exalted By bringing sick sinners into a saving healthy vibrant relationship with himself You and I sometimes are just focused on the benefits like well if I'm a a Christian that just makes my life better That's so short-sighted. It's still keeping out of the horizontal primarily your salvation. It's vertical It's about God and him honored and glorified and you need to understand You've been saved for a purpose. Like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, remember in verses 19 and 20? He says, hey, you are not your own, are you? you? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. You and I, were an example to the world that God takes miserable sinners and transforms them by grace through this relationship with Christ. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's like saying... Look at me. I was a blasphemer and a murderer before God saved me. And if the grace of God can make a missionary out of a murderer, he can certainly transform your life. And friends, that is classic Christianity. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's giving his personal testimony. Life before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and how he's growing in him. And notice how he ends this. You see, you know what classic Christianity is when you see people worshiping the king of kings, like verse 17. You see that? Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There is a complete Christ-centeredness about his life. I want God to be exalted. Friends, this is the faith once for all passed down to the saints. At Fellowship Bible Church, we have a mission statement. that simply says this, to glorify God by living out the life of God. We have in Christ. Life is an acronym for loving God, investing in others, following His word, engaging our world. What it really is, is classic Christianity to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. Because that's what classic Christianity is it is a Christ centeredness to all of life. And friends, that's why we're going to study 2 Timothy we need the real thing people who are looking for truth and believers who are growing they're not going to settle for saccharine substitutes they want the truth they want jesus and paul is writing this letter and god has had it preserved so that you and i would be revived by the truth of his word and really it makes all the difference i mean you start exercising discernment you uh you show discernment in what you read, what you hear, the kind of church that you're involved in. You find real purpose in life, and you find joy in Christ because once you've tasted the classic and you know Jesus, you don't want any substitutes. Back in Paul's day, if you were in the pottery business, uh, they would had a, had a way of being able to figure out if a piece of, prop, of pottery was, was truly worthy and it had no problems, no cracks. It was full of integrity. And all they would do is, you'd have all these people selling their wares and their pottery. The observant purchaser would go and pick up a vase, and he'd hold it against the sun. And he or she would twist it. And what they were looking for were cracks. You see, folks in the pottery business, if you ever made pottery, like, sometimes it cracks. It's like, oh, it came out of the oven, that's cracked. Well, I still got to sell this. And so what they do is they take some wax, and they put it in the cracks, kind of slack it all over there, and they put it out, and they'd sell it. And lots of people would buy it, you know, like, oh, I need this vase, I need a cup here, and I'd buy it. But if it was held up to the sun and it had no cracks, uh, the, the word is sincere, sine serios, without wax, the real thing. And friends, that's what we need. That's what people really need. They don't need New Coke. They don't need some sort of spawned-off Christianity that's intermixing the world and its ideals. They don't need to be strapped up with legalism. What they really need is classic Christianity, and that's what we find in Second Timothy. Christ-centered living is at the heart of classic Christianity, and God's got one message for us. Don't mess with a classic. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. You love us so tremendously that you have given us your word, your spirit, truth, life in your son. Forgiveness. And Father, for someone who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Jesus Christ, would they just pray with me now and say, Lord, I I turn from myself and my sin I've tried to find life apart from you for so long, and obviously it doesn't work. And you've brought me here to hear your word and to hear the gospel, the good news. And this morning, I believe. I believe in Jesus. And I ask you to lead my life. And Lord, for all of us, would you continue to build in us an appetite and a hunger for you, to know you personally, intimately, deeply, To love your truth and to grow strong as a testimony of your grace.